So I'm really excited because we're going to be talking about eating disorders, body composition, and kind of lifting. And so how some of these things pertain to some of the more athletic communities, especially lifters and bodybuilders. So uh, Jake, why don't you just start by sharing a little bit about yourself and kind of about your history? Yeah, so just first off, thanks for having me, Daniel. It's a real, um, real, real pleasure to to come onto this podcast, and uh, I appreciate your your following. And you know, I notice that you share quite a bit, which is which is always very helpful. The more people can do that, the better. So, um, yeah, it's great, great privilege. And so, I'm a um, I'm a research fellow at one of the universities, Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia. And you know, I'm just a full time researcher. Um, I don't practice clinically with, with um, people. But I, you know, focus on the research and I'm really interested in um, looking at how best we can not only understand, but treat or prevent people with eating disorders uh, with a particular interest in people who show those binge eating type symptoms, um, more so than a focus on people who that um, the anorexia nervosa, the, you know, the dangerously low body weight. So that's been keeping me busy for the past couple of years. I'm only fresh out of a just completing my PhD in 2018. I, I was awarded my PhD, so you know, two years into the early career research track, and it's going really nicely. And um, you know, I decided to join uh, the social media world just to see what it's all about, and it's been it's been great as a way to expand um, the audience with which you present your information because academics are really, you know, you write your research papers, they get published and only other academics read it. No one else really sees it. So I'm trying to, you know, present the information in a digestible way um, to people and, you know, get good people like yourself sharing it and talking about it. And that's just really the aim. And that's kind of what's really kept me occupied the past few years. It, it's so funny because a lot of the times, like even in the strength conditioning world, it's there's kind of like this sort of running theme where some of the best coaches focus so much on coaching and education that they just don't have the client base. And then the coaches who are absolute, you know, dog crap because it's so personal <laughs> yeah. and marketable, you know, they're, they've, they've got all this information everywhere, but, and all these yeah. clients, but you know, they're not really spreading the right stuff. Um, <laughs> so this is actually something that I've become increasingly interested in. Um, a lot of the papers that I've written recently have been to do with nutrition and, and, you know, there's definitely been segments in there where I've written about eating disorders and things like that. And so something I've dove into quite a bit in the last like several months. Mm. And I, I was shocked because there's so many misconceptions about what eating disorders are. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, when you think of eating disorder, when you say it, um, people kind of think of like some 16 year old girl who's starving herself to get on the cheerleading team, you know? And yeah. <laughs> even though that's a potential case, it's like, it's so much more diverse and so much more prevalent than that. At least that was kind of, you know, what I found mm -hmm. out. I was pretty shocked. So can you kind of give an overview of, you know, some of the commonly uh, observed eating disorders and what are their prevalence? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's so true what you say. When, when people think about an eating disorder, um, it's that teenage white girl who is starving herself. And we know that, yes, that is a portion of the people who, are, who do have an eating disorder, but there are so many more people that are affected. Um, you know, every different gender, race, ethnicity, um, everyone is affected to some extent. So when we're talking about eating disorders, there are I guess three core eating disorders we, we try to distinguish between, and then there are many more subtypes of those that fall with, that branch out from that. So the, the three core ones we like to talk about um, include anorexia nervosa. 
Uh, and that's the one, you know, the, the, the person with a dangerously low body weight, there's a refusal to eat. They really restrict their, their um, uh, caloric intake. And that then leads them to have a really distorted view of themselves and the world. They don't actually recognize that what they're doing is abnormal. And they don't recognize, you know, they are emaciated, you know, incredibly stick thin. And they still have this perception that they're fat. Um, so that's the anorexia type. And that's really characterized by the dangerously low body weight with severe restrictive tendencies. Um, but then there are people that branch out from that, you know, low body weight. And these people include, these people try to restrict, but they're actually, they actually fail at restricting. Um, so that's the bulimia nervosa. So bulimia nervosa is an eating disorder characterized by recurrent episodes of binge eating in combination with inappropriate compensatory behaviors. So binge eating, um, put very, very simply, is just simply uncontrollable eating. So eating a real lot and feeling that sense of loss of control. And because these people eat a real lot and they're highly concerned about their body weight and their body shape, um, they try to compensate for it. And there's different methods by which they compensate. But the most common one we see in bulimia nervosa is the self-induced vomiting. Um, so, you know, it's depicted all over in movies, media, stuff where, you know, you'll see the person bending over a toilet seat and they're, and they're throwing up their food after they had a binge. There are also a couple of other different types of compensatory behaviours like, you know, driven and rigid exercise. So really intense exercise regimes. The exercise is done purely as a result to get rid of the calories consumed in that binge episode. And there are also other things like taking laxatives um, to kind of flush the body out and also kind of water-based pills. So that's bulimia nervosa. And then there's binge eating disorder, very, very similar to bulimia nervosa. But um, the difference is that these people don't compensate. So after they binge eat, that's kind of it. They stick with it. They, they obviously loathe their behavior and what they've done. It really impacts their sense of self-worth, but they don't try to do anything about it. And the consequence of that, of that is that we usually see that this population, this subtype, um, more often than not are overweight and obese because they're consuming a really big amount of calories and not doing anything to expel those calories. So they're the three broad types. There are a lot of similarities between them, but there are also some core differences. And then within those, sub, within those three core um, subtypes, there are also other character, uh, categories as well, which we like to refer to them as the OSFED. So that means other specified feeding and eating Disorder. So it just means that it's the other people who don't quite meet the exact criteria needed for those other disorders, but they show similar characteristics. So one example I'll just provide is that um, there's an OSFED called bulimia nervosa of low threshold and frequency. So that just means that these people have the same symptoms of bulimia nervosa, but instead of binge eating on average and purging once a week for the past three months, they may be doing it once a fortnight. So it's just a, a minor a matter of semantics, but they're equally impaired in terms of the degree to which they are, you know, affected. Their quality of life is, you know, horribly shot because they're doing all these really bad behaviours. And to finally get to your point about the prevalence, we know that the prevalence is skyrocketing over time across, you know, men, um, women, um, uh, you know, different racial and ethnic classes. Um, so it's hard to put an estimate on it because obtaining really accurate epidemiological data is difficult. But in Australia, for example, um, I think the, the latest figure they said, there was, we've nearly approached um, 1 million people with an eating disorder in Australia. Um, and that was 
it was projected that we'd reach a million by 2020. So I'm assuming that we're probably nearly there, uh, which corresponds to roughly around, um, I don't want to actually speculate. I was going to say 4%, but I could be horribly wrong there. But we know that there's a roughly around a million people in Australia with an eating disorder. And the eating disorder that's most common is binge eating disorder, followed by bulimia and then anorexia nervosa. And that was something that uh, kind of was, it was interesting to me because a lot of the times the follow-up question to that is, well, why don't you just eat more? Why don't you just stop yeah. eating? Why don't you just, you know, use some self-control? And the more that I learn about this stuff, the more shocked that I am at, at how many different factors play into you know, mm. behavior and, and habituation. So things like, you know, key reactivity environment, um, mm-hmm you know, a pre- previous like substance abuse or trauma and all sorts of different things. Like it's, it's a really complicated area to navigate. And so like, what, what are some of the environmental factors, you know, or, or some of the external factors outside of just like willpower, for instance, that, mm. that really play into these types of behaviors? Yeah. Um, so yeah, you hear that quite a lot. It's like, yeah, why don't you eat more or why don't you just stop binge eating, stop overeating and show some control. Um, I wish it was that simple because then if it was that simple, then, you know, I would, I would be out of a job basically because there'd be no more reason to, to study this anymore. Um, so there are, you know, that's a really, people who say that obviously are not aware of the complexities that go behind um, human nature basically. So we know that there are so many different uh, risk factors for these types of conditions, as well as maintaining factors. So I'll just quickly differentiate between the two. So a risk factor is something that kind of predicts the onset of something. So that predicts, um, for example, who will get the eating disorder, who will first then develop it from not developing it. Um, That's a little bit different to a maintaining factor, which is something that a variable that predicts the persistence of something. So someone already has the disorder, what's keeping that disorder going? I think it's an important distinction because although there are some key similarities between risk factors and maintaining factors, there are also really important differences as well. Um, So I was just kind of put that out there before that. But yes, there are a multitude of different factors that influence the risk and maintenance of these types of, of behaviors. So trying to tell someone just simply stop doing it doesn't take into account those those multitude of, of, of variables. And the one the variables that we we that have received the most research support, attention, and backing um, include external related eating cues. So what I mean by that is simply someone who goes on a weight loss diet. But interestingly, it's not every diet that seems to be problematic in precipitating or maintaining these problems. We know that diets that are characterized by rigidity and extremeness are the ones that seem to cause eating disorders and keep them going. There's not enough evidence to to suggest at the moment that more flexible or graded approaches to weight loss diets are associated with the onset or maintenance of eating disorders. We just don't have that data just yet. But we do have the data when people engage in these really rigid, harmful eating patterns. So things like fasting, um, you know, skipping meals, um, you know, holding these really dichotomous food rules that certain foods are good, certain foods are bad. I must never eat the bad foods or else I'm a bad person. So that is a, a core mechanism that puts someone at risk and also precipitates the eating disorder behaviors. Um, other ones include negative affect, so fluctuations in different mood states. But we know that it's not that simple in terms of, you know, 
almost everyone in the world feels low to some extent and not everyone then goes on to binge eat. Um, so the problem that what we've got here is an interaction at play. So we know that people who um, have difficulties in regulating or controlling or modulating their negative mood states um, are most susceptible to engage in these, these eating disorder behaviours. So what the, the implication of that is when we're addressing these things, what we need to do is help people turn to more healthier coping mechanisms or coping strategies because it's that dysfunctional mood uh, modulatory behaviours that are kind of driving the eating pathology. Some other core examples of risk and maintaining factors also include body image concerns. So people who feel really unhappy with their body and then there's people who take it to a greater extent in that they kind of equate their self-worth or their self-esteem on the basis of what they weigh or what they look like. And that is what we like to talk about as the crux of the eating disorder. It's the thing that is holding the entire eating disorder together. So if we're able to reduce or target that, we call it an over-evaluation of weight and shape, then all the other risk factors kind of break apart. Um, not completely, but it really weakens their influence. So that's why we spend a lot of time in treatment trying to address those core ingrained body image concerns. So I could go on for days talking about all the different risk factors and all the different things, but I like to think of those ones as the key drivers that are responsible for kind of those eating disorder behaviours with the other things as well, like perfectionistic tendencies, impulsivity, trauma, sexual abuse, those things kind of helping support those other key things as well. They all interact with each other to, to affect it. Man, you, you said a lot of really, really interesting things there. And I'm going to try and kind of parse those out in, uh, in, in sequence. So one of the things you talked about was um, some of the behavior being a functional response, like a coping mechanism. So mm. that's something that I think sometimes gets a little bit misunderstood. You know, like I'll, I'll, I had this conversation with uh, someone the other day because I actually do have some clients who uh, have some eating disorders, like clinically diagnosed eating disorders. And so I'm working with them in conjunction with a team of, of professionals um, who are monitoring them much more closely. And so we can kind of like communicate that way. It was something that we, we talked about the other day and I'll, I'll say, oh, this is a, you know, it's a functional response to something. And they're like, well, how is it functional? Functional means good. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You know? So can you explain kind of what that means when someone says mm. it's like a coping mechanism, it's a functional response? Like what exactly does that mean? Yeah. So I think it essentially means that we're saying that it's serving the person a purpose. So it's almost kind of giving um, the person something to fall back on when something negative is going on in their life. So it's functional in the sense that it's reinforcing to the person. When we're talking about reinforcement, we're talking about, um, you know, in if we talk about classical operant conditioning principles, we've got negative reinforcement, which is something that reduces the likelihood or takes something negative away and then therefore increases the probability of us doing that again versus positive reinforcement, which is um, introducing something good, and then that also increases the likelihood of us doing it again. So in the terms of eating disorders behaviours being functional, it's actually a negative reinforcement strategy, which just basically, as I said, it means um, you know once you do that, you alleviate or you get rid of that negative affect or those mood fluctuations for a very brief period of time, and it allows you to temporarily forget about those things. And that's actually good because the person is dying to get away from those negative things that are going on. 
if they're experiencing some severe conflict, they're thinking about, you know, um, childhood abuse that they've had before, that is going to stir up a bunch of different crazy emotions that they don't like experiencing. So the first thing that we want to do when we experience these intense emotions is we want to escape them. We just want to get away with get away from them as soon as possible because clearly they're not pleasant to experience at all. So a way in which we can do that, an effective way to do that uh, in the short term is these eating disorder behaviors. So someone who um, you know binge eats, they just they can they make themselves eat so much to the point where they just lose all types of awareness, their emotional responses go away, they're numbing their, themselves basically. So that's what we mean by it's functional because it eliminates those negative harmful emotions that we experience for that short period, allows us to escape, be numb, and then, but the problem is once all that dies down and things get back to a little bit normal, the issue is that people go back to even more negative stuff later on. They've eaten all this crazy amount of food. They're probably thrown up if they've got bulimia nervosa. So what actually happens is they loathe themselves even more to begin with. So it's just a real cycle that keeps precipitating itself. It just keeps going and going. Um, and, you know, because it's negatively reinforcing, it just promotes that, that, that further happening later on down the track. It increases the likelihood of these behaviours happening again. So I think that's what, what people mean when they're talking about it's functional because it's serving a purpose for the person who is doing it. And actually a good purpose, keyword, temporarily there. So um, the next thing you talked about was you mentioned uh, dichotomous thinking. So those kind of like polar opposites, good, mm. bad. Um, and you mentioned, you know, or, or kind of alluded, I'm not sure if you said it specifically, but you did sort of touch on the subject of, you know, rigid versus flexible restraint. Yeah. Um, can you just kind of speak to those? Like, what are they? How are they different? And uh, how, how do either of those factor into to eating disorders? Mm, yeah. So um, this is a question that, that that's, that's a really hot and to uh, hot and popular question, uh, particularly in the in the fitness community, because there's a there's a there's a I guess a push now to promote more flexible dieting um, in in you know. Uh, sports athletes i'm not entirely privy to, to that sport but um, that's what i've kind of heard across the grapevine so i've done a I've, I've been interested in this these questions and i've done some research on on kind of distinguishing flexible from rigid restraint um, and a couple of key things to, to point out is we need to differentiate between the two so as i mentioned earlier not all dieting is the same people go on weight loss diets but they use different methods to kind of restrict their eating or restrain their eating. So we, we like to think of weight loss diets as either, as either broken up into more flexible dieting versus more rigid dieting. So a flexible diet is, is a graded approach to, to dieting. Uh, and by that, I mean, it's not, uh, people take a balanced view. It's, it's not, um, it, it's not uh, an inflexible way of engaging these behaviors. So they, they allow themselves sets of guidelines to follow they allow themselves to enjoy a wide variety of foods. But the key point is that they still have that weight loss goal in mind. Um, but with that weight loss goal in mind, they still engage in behaviors that are more flexible. So they, you know, they would allow themselves, you know, a range of different food types. They won't exclude certain types of foods. Um, you know, they won't compensate. If they've eaten too much at one meal, they won't really go to great lengths of compensating in the next meal because they feel so guilty. 
So it's a really flexible approach and it's kind of a it's kind of a meal by meal basis these people operate in. They don't think too far ahead. Um, so they kind of have some rough guidelines that they wish to follow. If they break those guidelines, then it's so be it. I'll just get back on the horse for the next meal and then we'll keep going with my guidelines. That's very different to what we see with rigid dietary restraint. So rigid dietary restraint is that all or none type of, of dieting. So with these, these people who diet, they, they, they have a bunch of different inflexible food rules that they must adhere to. And any deviation or breaking of, of one of those food rules is basically interpreted as they've lost self-control, they're a failure, their diet is pointless. Why should I bother keep on dieting when I keep failing? So some common examples of these food rules include you know, um, um, fasting. So people don't allow themselves to eat anything until maybe like you know, three o'clock in the arvo. That's when they have their first meal. So they go with you know, the morning, lunchtime, they don't eat anything. They starve themselves. Other ones include eliminating entire food groups. So people you know, go on these ridiculous um, ketogenic diets where they don't allow themselves certain foods. I don't know of the personal health benefits of keto diets. I don't even know if there is any. Um, but I know of the psychological impacts of keto diets. So you know, I'm not a particular fan of that because it's a rigid, it's characterized by a lot of rigidity, those diets. Um, so they're the two distinguishing characteristics of flexible and, and rigid dietary restraint. And what we've actually shown in research is that they differentially relate to adverse outcomes. So what we see is that rigid dietary restraint is predictive of much more severe eating disorder symptoms it's even predictive of much more greater weight cycling. So people really cycle through different high weight, low weight, high weight, low weight. And it's also predictive of mental health problems like depression, anxiety, and things like that. It's a little bit different to flexible dietary control. We actually don't see those relationships that exist. We actually see that flexible dietary restraint is, is unrelated. It's statistically unrelated to those outcomes we were talking about there. So whether flexible restraint is healthy per se, the jury is still out. We're not entirely sure yet because we haven't done... The quality of evidence at the moment is quite preliminary. Um, we still need some more intensive longitudinal designs or prospective studies where we follow people over a long period of time to see whether or not these strategies are safe. We don't have that at the moment. We're relying on more purely cross-sectional and statistical associations. But the pattern emerging is that Flexible, if you're going for a dietary strategy, you are much better opting for a flexible approach than a rigid approach um, for a bunch of health-related reasons and particularly for eating-related pathologies. I guess it kind of leads into something else that I've seen. Like you've been mentioning the whole time, like just because you display these certain qualities or characteristics or potential risk factors doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you're at, that you are going to predispose yourself to an eating disorder. Hmm. Um, and something that would be really relevant to, you know, my field and the listeners would be competitive bodybuilding, especially, but then also powerlifting, right? Where you have, yeah. um, to a lesser degree, athletes dieting down to meet a certain weight class, but in bodybuilding, that's a little bit more extreme, right? So yeah. that is something where you would see a very high degree of rigid restraint. And I'm wondering, I'm not sure if there is lots of evidence in terms, I, I have read some paper, I, I read one paper actually that was looking at bodybuilders and um, uh, comparing them to females with anorexia nervosa. I can't remember yeah. off the top of my head. Um, yeah, sure. I think I know which one you're talking about, actually. Um, but um, 
but yeah, so there does seem to be, you know, a little bit of overlap in, in a lot of the characteristics, but then one of the findings was one had um, positive self-image, one had negative self-image, one had positive that was based on extrinsic factors, which made it very fragile. So like, can you talk to that and how, like, would you expect, I'm not sure if there is research on it, but would you expect to see a higher prevalence of uh, potential eating disorders or disordered eating behavior? Um, and I guess, what, what does that mean between, you know, people who are healthy, unaffected, and the people who are not? Yeah, so a couple of things to un unpack there is that we know in, in the community with which, you, you know, you're involved in the, the, the sports community in terms of weightlifting, bodybuilding, powerlifting, we, there's good evidence showing that the, this population is at increased risk for developing um, these eating disorder pathologies. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of evidence showing that the prevalence of, of eating disorders is much higher in, in these populations, these competitive lifting populations relative to the general population. And the reason is, is obvious because these sports almost encourage eating disorder behaviors. They almost promote them. They, they say, you know, you've got to diet down to the absolute, you know, you've got to eat that, um, you've got to make sure you eat 150 grams of protein. You've got to make sure you have no more than 100 grams of carbs. Anything over is probably dangerous. So in, in a sense, uh, these bodybuilding, um, this, this sport is promoting those eating disorder behaviors. So it's a, it's a little bit tricky working in this space, you know, trying to, trying to uncover or, or stop or prevent eating disorders among, among people. But when you've got this sport that almost promotes it, it's like, wow, we've got a bit of a, we've got a bit of tension here. So what do we do about this? Because um, you don't want to take away these sports in, you don't want to take away this sport for people. They love it. There are certain people who, that would thrive on this sport. It's their identity. It's their who they are. So we don't want to admit it. We don't want to take that away from them. But what we want, do want to do is we want to uh, we want to encourage healthier behaviours um, rather than going for that real rigidity approach. There are certain healthy behaviours that people can adopt and still reduce the likelihood of developing an eating disorder or eating disorder behaviours if they're this type of person. And the one we spoke about earlier was the. Um, the the you know the flexible approach to eating taking a more balanced approach to dieting rather than that strict rigidity there so you can still achieve those goals but, you know there is evidence showing that you know if you take that flexible approach you can still achieve those short-term weight related goals than if you took more likely than if you took a, a rigid approach or it's more sustainable i should say the good thing about bodybuilding and these populations is that the sport is relatively short-lived my understanding of the sport is that once you have, um, once you've jumped on stage, it's almost like that's it, isn't it? You may have another competition after that, or you know, it, it doesn't go on prolonged. Then you have an opportunity to get back on track and start instilling these healthier behaviours. You can start instilling that eating based on internal cues rather than purely dietary um, restraint and restrictive eating. So I think the problem with this population in terms of why their eating disorder prevalence is so much more pronounced than the general pop is that they're a bit unaware of how to um, practice safer behaviors when they're going into this sport. So, you know, hopefully these kind of podcasts, these, these awareness channels allow people to practice these safer approaches, which would therefore reduce the likelihood of um, developing an eating disorder or eating disorder behaviors. There's still a lot more to go and there's still much more that we need to figure out. But, you know, as you mentioned, there is data showing that 
even though the expression of the psychopathology in bodybuilders is different to anorexia nervosa, the important thing is that in some instances, the degree of impairment experience is relatively similar. So these people are still really affected, even though the symptoms that they exhibit are slightly different. And that's a key criteria for you know, the diagnosis of eating disorders. That criteria is if it's affecting your day-to-day living and functioning, then it's a problem. If people are doing these things and they're not affected, you know, they're, they're counting their calories to the minute, they're not binge eating, they're not doing anything, they're not affected, then it's actually not that bad for that individual. But once you start, you know, your social life is negatively impaired, your emotional functioning, all that is affected, then it starts to be a problem and then it's something that we should kind of address. A lot of the times, even when I'm working with athletes, like I, I have my own series of intake forms and things like that. And that's specifically one of the things that I like to talk about, especially with my female athletes, you know, like just getting a little bit of history on their, on their kind of eating behavior and, and mm-hmm. sort of their perceptions on eating because it hasn't happened a ton because I don't, I don't do bodybuilding or contest prep or any of that stuff. I do powerlifting. And if, you know, people want to adjust their physique, that's great. But yeah. I think the extreme side of things, I've personally had a lot of negative experiences where I've seen yeah. friends do that and have a very negative outcome. So it's not something I feel like I really want to get into. Um, but I've, I've had to turn people away sometimes specifically because I was like, you know what? I think that if you pursue this goal right now, I think you're really just going to feed into some of these, like you were saying, negative pathologies and uh, it can become a little bit more full blown. You, you mentioned- yeah, I love that you say that because sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say, um, you know, I've heard a couple of people have now said that they've been doing that. So I, I heard that a couple of people have, they're doing these intake forms prior to you know, these, these fitness um, professionals, uh, when they're taking new clients, they're doing these, these fitness forms and, you know, they're seeking their, their, their history. And if there is a history of chaotic, you know, eating disorders, probably saying, you know, going into a bodybuilding show might not be the best idea. I think that is a wonderful thing that you guys are doing because it just demonstrates that, you know, you're not there just be like, give me your money and, you know, let's, let's, let's do this. It's more showing a a respectful care. And that, in my opinion, is what makes for an excellent professional in any domain of, of functioning. So it's great to see that so many people now, particularly in the fitness industry, taking a cautious approach to these issues yeah I think a lot of that has to do with you know education like again it's so funny because there's so many things that I saw that I was like hmm this doesn't really seem right but because I just didn't necessarily have enough Mm. awareness to kind of identify at least like certain things um I wasn't able to necessarily you know direct them in the right uh point them in the right direction whereas you know cases like uh, or sorry instagram accounts like yours and then even just the uh the book i think you were you're giving away not too long ago right like mm. i remember reading through that and that had a questionnaire to, to determine you know certain mm, yeah certain symptoms and certain risk factors and so that's something that i incorporated into my uh into my intake form because i was like if someone is i don't want to be working with them i want to be able to give them to someone else and excellent you know, like yeah. it's just it's better for me. It's better for them. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just like, it's, it's, yeah, it's less hassle. And it's at the end of the day, like you gotta, you gotta provide a service, right? Like I'm not going to sit here and be like, Oh yeah, I can coach you. Uh, you know, as a CrossFit athlete, I can totally coach you. It's like, yeah, I, I get the science. Like I'm a strength conditioning coach. Yes, I can do that, but I, I'm not a CrossFit athlete. And yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot to be garnered from having that, you know, real world 
like in-person experience doing that. And so, yeah, it's not really something I'm interested in, to be honest. And interestingly, (laughs) when when you get these, you know, these people that have these severe pathologies and they, and they come to you, what we actually know is that these people with a a history of these eating disorders or, or if they exhibit the symptoms, that is actually really strongly predictive that they won't achieve their goals um, in the gym or, you know, their, their physique yeah. goals or their performance-related goals because these eating disorder symptoms obstruct change. They prevent someone from making these healthier changes and prevent them from reaching their goals. So it's actually it actually does a disservice to the professional because if they take these people on, there's a really good likelihood that these people won't be achieving their goals. And it almost looks like, it, it's almost like that the, that the professional or the fitness professional is looking bad because they're not, achieving what the you know they've got nothing to show for this client and they're not achieving the goal no totally it's 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 a lose-lose situation so i'd much rather have them be in better hands more capable hands how like are there other psychological disorders that that are associated with eating disorders either some that might predispose you to disordered eating or, or some of those pathologies or if you know the development of an eating disorder can create um, you know, things like depression or, or maybe like anxiety or something like that. Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. It's not, it's not actually a question that I get asked a lot. So I think it's the first time I would have been, I would have answered this on a podcast. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so the, the answer is there is a substantial overlap between comorbidities and eating disorders. So there's actually been some large scale studies that have shown that, you know, with, with big populations of eating disorder people, and they've actually shown that 97% of the sample exhibit at least one comorbid mental health condition, whether that was depression, whether that was anxiety, personality disorder, substance abuse disorder, any disorder. Basically, if you've got an eating disorder, the likelihood of you having another comorbid mental health problem um, is basically guaranteed almost. So that's really problematic. Then the, then the question becomes, right, what comes first? Is it the eating disorder that comes first and then causes, quote unquote, the mental health disorder? Or is it the other mental health disorder that's causing the eating disorder? Unfortunately, uh, we don't have that great quality evidence yet to answer these questions uh, because to answer those questions, we need experimental research designs um, you know, which there are ethical constraints. I won't get into that, but there are ethical constraints with conducting experiments on these populations. But we do have some retrospective designs and we do have some prospective studies. And there are a couple of disorders that stand out as things that come first and then trigger an eating disorder. So the ones are, there's anxiety disorders. Um, and every different type of anxiety disorder has been linked to the development of an eating disorder later on. And the ones that receive the most intention are PTSD. That's really strongly linked to that. And it comes back to that trauma-based experience. So people who have PTSD experience quite a bit of trauma. And then that trauma then triggers, you know, a down, an influx of eating disorder symptoms. Um, And there's also mood disorders are very, you know, uh, um, are associated with the development of eating disorders. Because we know that, you know, as we spoke about, you know, a few minutes ago, eating disorder behaviours um, stem as a result of dysfunctional modulation behaviours. So people that aren't able to cope properly with their depression and their mood stuff. So that's also cause a, a link, I shouldn't say cause, but it's also linked to um, eating disorders. And borderline personality disorder seems to be prospectively linked with eating disorder. So borderline personality disorder is a type of eating disorder basically characterised by emotion dysregulation. 
so and parasuicidal behaviors and even suicidal behaviors. Um, so it's borderline personality disorder is by far the hardest, arguably the hardest mental health problem to treat. And we've shown that borderline personality disorder is also linked to eating disorders as well. And, it, and the reverse is the case as well. So then once people have the eating disorder, that also worsens these other mental health problems as well. So it's, it's basically a cycle. They both cause each other. Um, so, you know, it's not, it's not unidirectional, it's bi-directional. It's a bi-directional relationship. And almost every single mental health problem has been associated with the onset of eating disorders and has also been shown to be a consequence of eating disorders as well. For me, that's the part that I find the most interesting because it's very rarely ever talked about. You know, like when, whenever I see people talking about eating disorders, it just, it never really gets past that superficial level of like, you know, oh, they're trying to look skinny or, oh, they're, you know, they've got low self-esteem or whatever it is. And it's like, sure, that's, that's, you know, part of it, but it's really just the tip of the iceberg. And I mean, you know, you go down the mm -hmm. rabbit hole of like PTSD and like you were saying, you know, negative affect and all these different things. And, and, uh, did you say bipolar disorder? Yeah. Mood disorders, bipolar disorder. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And like, it's, it's so much more complicated. And I think that it, it just goes to show that, you know, especially like you're saying in the athletic populations, that's something that I've definitely observed. And now that I'm starting to gain a little bit more awareness about some of the things that are involved, um, working with people and just talking to people, knowing a lot of people in the industry, as well as, uh, you know, different athletes and things like that. It's something that I think is, like you mentioned, a lot more prevalent than, than people would like to think. Because mm. I, I think that they don't really have a clear understanding of what some of the disordered eating behavior really looks like. Um, even something like, let's say, social identity, right? You know, like how, how you eat and, and who you are. And like you were saying, with, with certain, you know, sort of social cues and triggers and things like that. Um, can you sort of touch on that? Like, how does, how does someone's social identity... Like if someone likes to go out all the time with their friends or even just occasionally, but then, ten, you know, if they go out with their friends, all of a sudden they kind of experience this disinhibition and, yeah. you know, inability, disinhibition being like the inability to control, um, you know, your diet, and your intake uh, temporarily. Yeah. So, so yeah, we know that interpersonal problems in particular are a, are, are a key um, maintaining factor for eating disorder behaviors. Um, and there are, this ties into the social identity that you were talking about. There's actually, there's so much evidence for the role of interpersonal functions and eating disorder behaviours. There's, there's actually been an entirely um, a separate psychological treatment designed specifically to address people's interpersonal behaviours, and that's called interpersonal psychotherapy. There's good evidence showing that interpersonal psychotherapy is very effective for binge eating disorder and bulimia nervosa, um, and, and that evidence therefore suggests indirectly that interpersonal problems are having a core um, feature or, or are having a, a core trigger towards these eating disorder behaviours. So there are numerous different types of interpersonal problems or functions that precipitate or influence the likelihood of people engaging in these eating disorder behaviours. And the ones that we like to, the ones that we know for sure um, that dominate tend to be conflict. So interpersonal conflict where, you know, with a spouse or with a friend or something like that, that has been shown to, to trigger um, binge eating bursts or bouts of binge eating, as well as, you know, um, efforts to restrict food intake as well. And the, the reason for that, the mechanisms behind or explaining that 
are not entirely well understood. Um, it seems to be a result of people's negative social evaluations. So people tend to, when they're having conflict with someone, they tend to kind of think to themselves, well, I'm not really fitting in with, you know, where I should be in my social world. And that interpretation or perception then kind of is hypothesized to then trigger negative thoughts and feelings about the self. And then those negative thoughts and feelings are the things that are driving the eating disorder behaviors. So we like to think of it as interpersonal problems coming first. That then leads to binge eating behavior third via the thing in the middle, which are those negative feelings, thoughts, and interpretations people have. So that's a theory, um, and, and that theory is the interpersonal psychotherapy or psychological um, theory. And it also assumes that it's not only conflict that has a direct role, it's also perceived isolation. So people who kind of are lonely, they feel that they don't have many social supports or social networks, um, that also triggers the eating disorder cycle as well. Um, and there are other things as well. So it's not just positive, it's not just negative things. It's also actually the absence of positive feedback as well. So if people aren't being reinforced enough by their social surroundings or their social social situation, if they're not being kind of praised, and I'm not talking about praises in overt congratulations and stuff, I'm just talking about little reinforcements, so like friends calling you up and wanting to hang out or something like that. That's just a small way in which a friend can show that they care for you. Um, so there's actually work done to show that it's not just the overt negative stuff that is problematic, so the teasing, the bullying, the isolation. It's actually the lack of positive stuff too. So they sound similar, but they're completely different. So someone may not intentionally be mean to you, but their tendency to perhaps not respond to you or to ignore you a little bit unintentionally um, is also problematic and can, and can kind of trigger those behaviours. So broadly speaking, there are a whole bunch of interpersonal processes that trigger eating disorder behaviours, but it's not so much a direct trigger. It triggers other things which then trigger the eating disorder behaviours. As we spoke about, it's really complex and there's not one risk factor. Everything just interacts with each other to influence yeah. the eating yeah. disorder behaviours. I guess if, if we're looking at that kind of as a spectrum, um, if we go to the other end of the spectrum where, you know, on this side we have um, either negative reinforcement or an absence of positive reinforcement, how would I as an individual, let's say I'm experiencing some of these things, how would I develop or try and foster that type of, you know, social environment to, I guess, better support myself to, to overcome some of these some of these issues? Yeah, so there's a, there's a bit of stuff on this. Um... And that's, this is the, so the question you're basically asking is what, what do we do in interpersonal psychotherapy? Because interpersonal psychotherapy is entirely devoted towards helping people with social relationships. Right. Because there's the assumption that the social relationships are the thing that's causing the eating disorder. Mm -hmm. um, so there are a couple of things that we know that people can do. And, and one of them is um, a, a problem solving technique. So what we really see with these people that have social deficits um, is their inability to actually understand what is going on in their social life. So problem solving really tries to get people to take a step back and really identify or pinpoint the, the factors that are contributing to the problem interpersonal relationships. So it's really, it's a series of steps that, you know, people are asked to identify the problem 
social encounters that they have and try to really delve into why those things are problem are problematic. And once you have an idea or a recognition or you can see patterns within your social behaviours or your social relationships, then what you can do is then devote a lot of time towards addressing those or enhancing those. So that's one technique we use to help people's kind of social sphere. Another one is that we see that people that have social um, deficits tend to be, they're the people that generally feel that they're walked all over. So people take advantage of them, uh, people try to use them and things like that. What we do in interpersonal psychotherapy is we try to teach a little bit of assertive training. That's really trying to develop up skills and courage to, it sounds corny, but it actually works, to kind of stand up for yourself. Not in a mean or malicious way, but really to identify what is um, a, a, an adequate or a, a fair social relationship and teaching the person to speak up whenever things are uh, problematic. Um, so there are just a couple of examples by which you can, you, can, um, you can train your social relationships. There are also other things as well as, you know, um, uh, investing times in the people that do offer you positive reinforcement um, versus people that don't offer you reinforcement. So it's a real contingency environmental training where you're trying to modify your environment to prevent the onset of these punishing um, interpersonal uh, encounters and trying to maximise those positive reinforcing strategies. So we know a lot of the time we're going to have someone in our life that offers some gentle type of reinforcement, whether it's your mum, your dad, your brother, your sister, or your spouse. Um, you want to really amplify those relationships and invest heavily on them and minimise those really toxic relationships. And that's what we try to do uh, in interpersonal psychotherapy, which has some, some evidence to support it. When, when you're working with a client, let's say, um, how would you go about developing like a treatment protocol or not necessarily like a treatment protocol, but how would you, I guess, go about developing kind of like a dialogue around, hey, here's what's going on. Here's what we're going to have to do. Here's how we're going to move you from, you know, point A towards slightly more productive behavior, more productive kind of perceptions around eating body image, things like that. Like, how do you open up that dialogue? And I guess, how do you kind of continue that moving forward? Yeah, that's a good one. Because the problem with eating disorders is that it's kind of a secret disorder. And what I mean by that is people are very reluctant to disclose that they've got an eating disorder, or they're very reluctant to see help, seek help. And the reason for that is it's such a stigmatized disorder. So people are embarrassed to have an eating disorder, basically. And, they're in, and because they're embarrassed, they want to prevent getting help. They'll do all they can to not get help because, you know, you don't want to tell your friend, you don't have to, but you don't want to, you don't want your friends, for example, to find out that you've got a binge eating disorder, you've got an eating disorder. To that person, it's embarrassing. Hopefully, you know, at, over time, um, the stigma of mental illness is changing. But the reality we face at the moment is that that's what's happening. Most of the people that have an eating disorder don't seek help. And a big reason for that is because they're embarrassed. So for the people that do, what we want to do is we want to encourage people to seek help. And we want to, and, and one way in which we do that is via education and, you know, spreading awareness and the word. So hopefully these types of things that we're doing now um, is normalising the problem a little bit and not, not normalising in a bad way, but really highlighting how common and prevalent it is. And by doing that, what we can actually do is we can instill a little bit of motivation and as soon as we're in, as soon as we get that little bit of motivation and we prompt someone to seek help, then half the battle is done. 
we're almost halfway there towards helping this person to recover. The, the, arguably, the hardest part is getting someone to talk about these things from the get-go. And once we've done that, then we can really start making plans towards change. And what I'm, I'm a CBT person, and what I mean by that is I am a big advocate for cognitive behavioural therapy for listeners that may not be aware. So cognitive behavioural therapy is basically a treatment protocol that helps people correct dysfunctional behaviours and really uh, adjust their maladaptive thoughts. And part of the cognitive behavioural approach is to kind of come up with a case formulation. So the first thing we do is we want to highlight to the person all of the things that are keeping, excuse me, all of the things that are keeping their eating disorder going. Everything that's relevant in their life that is keeping the problem going. And it may be things like, you know, extreme dieting. It may be things like unhealthy weight control behaviors, you know, ex, you know obsessiveness over body weight and body shape inability to tolerate negative mood states. So what we want to do with the client is we want to draw out, literally draw a map of all of the things that are contributing to their problem at that point in time. The point of that is we want to get the client to clearly recognize and observe everything that's going on in their life at the moment that could be contributing to these problem behaviors they're experiencing. And once they've got a really solid and deep understanding of that, then we start planning our steps forward. Then we pinpoint, right, what if, if with client A, what is the thing that is most important to you that's contributing? And they might say, listen, I know it's that it's my dieting. It's my obsessive dieting. That's the thing that is getting me the most. That's causing me the most distress. So then as a clinician, what we would say is, right, let's spend our time first up tackling dieting first. And then the, another client may come in and go, it's not the dieting that's the issue for me. It's my obsessiveness with my body weight and my body shape. Then we'd say to this client, right, let's focus on this part first. And then what, that's what we call a personalized treatment approach. But we focus on the things that are most relevant towards the client. And that personalized approach is the thing that is um, very important towards instilling positive change later on down the track because you don't want to give two people with two different things going on in their life the same program because that will result in a lower likelihood of positive outcomes. I couldn't agree more especially when it comes to the whole awareness piece. So I had PTSD and it was funny because it wasn't until I was actually like diagnosed and someone actually sat down and was like hey here's what's going on here you know like here's kind of where you're saying you're being affected and here's yeah. why this is happening that I yeah. was like, Oh my God, this makes so much sense. And, and yeah, the absolutely. Yeah. that was created around that allowed me to really adjust my environment, adjust, you know, my yeah. relationships, my responses to things. And so I wasn't like, man, what's going on? Like, I just, I'm, I'm having such a hard time here. It was like, Oh no, this makes sense. And it, it gives you a lot of resources and a lot of tools. So I, I love the awareness piece. Um, that you're talking about because that in itself, at least, you know, just speaking for me, I, I don't know about, you know, eating disorders, I would assume there's some overlap there, but uh, you know, that in itself was a huge, huge piece for me because the biggest thing that it did was it alleviated a lot of anxiety mm. because a lot of the times I think if you don't know what's going on, you're like, man, like what is happening? Why can't I control my eating? And no one thinks they have an eating disorder, you know, but then when you're like, oh, oh okay. Yeah. This is actually something I do have. Well, guess what? That means now you have options, you have resources you can pursue, you have answers and solutions. And I yeah. think sometimes it's not even necessarily in someone's um, 
in, in someone's like conscious awareness that, Hey, you know what, this is something that's solvable. It's something that people have dealt with before. And, and if other people can get out of it, then I can likely get out of it as well. So I, I love that you kind of highlighted that. Um, so I want to be respectful of your time. I know we are coming to kind of that hour uh, long mark. Can you just kind of give us a quick summary of, of some of the things kind of that we discussed, some of the really important takeaways, and then just, just leave something, uh, for some of the listeners, like a, maybe a piece of advice or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think what I think what I, you know, ending off, I would say my biggest piece of advice would be, you know, if you've got a, there's a strong body of evidence saying that, suggesting that the earlier we can intervene and catch the problem as soon as possible, the better the likelihood of recovery or success or the better the outcome. We don't want to delay the the we don't want to delay help seeking because if we delay help seeking, it's going to be much harder to address or to tackle these problems. So if you're a listener out there and you're 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 catching yourself exhibit some some of these problematic or these harmful patterns, intervene early. Do something about it as soon as possible because you want to prevent that from becoming ingrained in your identity. And my I like taking the stepped care approach. Um, to kind of treating or addressing or preventing eating disorders. And the stepped care approach is for a person who, you know, has recognized that they may have a problem, what they want to do, their first point of call is what we call self-help. So once that, rather than in immediately going towards a psychologist or a psychiatrist, because they cost big bucks, they cost a lot of money for someone, you know, $200 Australian a session in, in, in Australia, um, rather than going immediately there, see if you can find out some online helpful resources, some books that may help you address these problems first up. Give it a go. Give that self-help approach a go and be your own kind of um, therapist. You know, train yourself to try to stop these harmful behaviours. Then after about a month's time or so, assess your progress. Assess how you're going. And if you feel like this approach, this self-help approach isn't working for me i can't do this nothing's improving it's actually getting worse then you want to step up that's why we call it a step care approach you want to step up to something a little bit more intensive and that little bit more intensive could be you know as simple as simple as going to maybe seeing a nutritionist a dietitian or maybe even a psychologist or a psychiatrist the idea is that you want to give yourself the best likelihood of catching the problem early and the way in which you can catch the problem may be through some helpful resources out there in the world that don't cost any money, that can help you do it yourself. But then if you feel like you're not responding to that, step up to something a little bit more intensive that may require you to fork out a bit of cash and a bit of money um, because that may be the thing that will drive you towards change. Because I want to be respectful of people's fact that, you know, mental health is expensive. You know, people that go, people can go to therapy for years and years and years, and that is expensive, and people just can't afford that among the other barriers that people encounter. So, you know, a smart way to do it is by, you know, having a go at doing it first yourself, and then that, because a lot of the time, people can successfully treat their own issue by themselves. And then if you feel like you can't do it, then it's maybe time to move on to something. So that's just a little practical tip that I would offer to people that are in the early stages of these kinds of issues that they're facing. Awesome. No, I love that. And so where can, uh, where can the listeners find you? Yeah. So if you're interested in coming, so all the things that, you know, we spoke about Daniel, um, uh, you know, I post this heavily on, on the Instagram page that I run called at break binge eating. So it's just pr basically presents the information that we spoke about here uh, 
among more stuff. So be, be sure to check that out, um, as well as the Break Binge Eating website. So on the Break Binge Eating website, um, there are a bunch of different articles. Um, there's a, as you mentioned earlier, we've got a, a free downloadable ebook. So it's a, that's the self-help ebook that I'm talking about. So it takes people through a five-step um, process to stop binge eating. So it's free. Just download it, give it a go, see if it works for you. I've had a lot of amazing um, positive feedback saying that's really helped people, which is great. Um, so yeah, that's the best place to reach me. And I'm always happy to, you know, I love talking to people. So please feel free to reach out if there are any questions. Awesome. So I'll definitely link those up in the show notes below. Um, I did download the, uh, the ebook. I read through it. I loved it. I think it's a really, really valuable resource for anyone looking to get more information um, and looking to, like you said, kind of try that step approach out. So man, thank you so much. It was really great chatting with you. Um, I, I learned a ton. I, I know the listeners learned a ton and, uh, you know, really looking forward to kind of seeing what, what else you do on your page. Absolutely. No, I really appreciate you having me and I hope, um, I hope that people find benefit from it. So it's a great thing that you're doing in terms of promoting everything. So yeah, really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks a lot, man. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode and took a lot from it that you can apply to your own situation to see much better results. I just have one quick personal favor to ask of you. Please make sure you subscribe and leave me a five-star rating on whatever podcast platform you're using. When you do this, it helps me get better at producing content and increases my exposure so I can continue putting out high-quality information for you guys. Next, I want to extend a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram at Stacked Strength. I'll help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to connect with me directly, so make sure you head on over and jump into my DMs. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.